Will the congregation please turn with me in their Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. Starting in verse 45 and going until verse 52. Jesus walking upon the water. Please join with me in prayer to our covenant God. Lord God, we again come before Thee. We thank Thee for this opportunity to sing praises to Thee, to sing Thy Word back to Thee in the Psalter, to hear Thy Word read when so many of our brethren do not have the ability to do so throughout the world. Lord, we now come to this part of our service, the preaching of Thy Word. We ask, Lord, for thy help. I ask, Father, that would help this preacher, this weak, weak man, to proclaim thy word accurately, truly, in the spirit and the truth. Lord, I pray for these, thy people, the sheep of thy pasture, thy sons and daughters, that would speak to them through thy word. Apply thy word to their hearts those hearts which thou hast remade through generation by the power of thy Holy Spirit. Lord, we have great need of thee, greater than we know. We come to thee, Lord Jesus. God manifest in the flesh. God with us, our Emmanuel. Thou who hast come to save thy people from their sins. And Lord, thou hast saved us. Thou hast redeemed us from our sins with the price of thy own precious blood. Thou didst taste hell for us that we might live. Help us, O Lord, then to receive thy word. The Lord rebuke Satan. Cause thy word to increase, O Holy Spirit. Help these Thy weak and needy people, cause us to have hunger even now, spiritual hunger for righteousness, for thy word. Send us not on a fool's errand, O God, but do that with thy word which thou hast promised, to make it effectual, powerful, for the edification of thy body. Father, be glorified. Christ, be lifted high and draw thy people to thee. Holy Spirit, apply thy word to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Jesus walking upon the Sea of Galilee, starting in Mark chapter 6 and verse 45. Let us hear now the word of God. This is after the feeding of the multitude. Verse 45. And straightway, that is immediately, he constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go to the other side before unto Bethsaida while he sent away the people. And when he had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. And when even was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea and he alone on the land. And he saw them toiling and rowing for the winds was contrary unto them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he cometh unto them, walking upon the sea, and would have passed by them. And when they saw him walking upon the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit, and cried out, for they all saw him, and were troubled. And immediately he talked with them, and saith unto them, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And he went up unto them, into the ship, and the wind ceased. And they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure and wondered, for they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it. Amen. Jesus walks upon the Sea of Galilee. Dear congregation, as we continue on in our exposition of the Gospel of Mark, let us take note of the fast-paced barrage 
of miraculous events which we have seen. Mark barely allows us to catch our breath before we are brought to consider another supernatural event which demonstrates the divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mark, as we have seen, does not as much teach the divinity of Christ as he plainly demonstrates it time and time again, though he does both. Once we have made our way through one miracle, as we have seen, we are given another, and another, and another. Just since the close, to put things in context, just since the close of the parable of the mustard seed in chapter 4, we have seen Christ calm the storm with one word, be still on the Sea of Galilee. We've seen him cast out a legion, that is 12,000 demons from an untamable man and Gadarene. We saw the woman with the issue of blood. She had it 12 years. Spent all that she had on physicians, but was none the better. We saw her healed by merely touching the fringe of Christ's robe. And he knew that virtue, that is power to heal, had gone forth from him. We saw Jesus raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. Christ healed some sick people of a disease in his hometown of Nazareth. We saw that he gave power. He was the one that gave power to heal and cast out demons unto his apostles when he sent them out for their first missionary journey. And then we also saw his miraculous feeding of the 4,000 with five loaves of bread and a few fishes last week. That's just since chapter 4. Even now, Mark's gospel does not relent. We are now led to witness Christ walking upon the water unto his disciples when they again find themselves in a dangerous position on the Sea of Galilee. There are many instructive lessons for us in this striking passage, both drawn from the plain and practical reading of it and also spiritually deduced. In the scene before us, let us consider three things. First, the Lord's providential care of his disciples. The Lord's providential care of his disciples. Second, the dullness of his disciples. The dullness of his disciples. And third, the Lord's divine power to both save and comfort. The Lord's divine power to save and comfort. First, the Lord's providential care of his disciples. The first act of providence, which we see in the passage before us, is found in verse 45. We read, And he straightway, he constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go to the other side before unto Bethsaida, while he sent away the people. You see, Jesus constrained, that is, forced the disciples to go without him, in front of him, before him, to leave him behind and go to Bethsaida on the other side of the sea. Why did Jesus do this? Why did Christ force, constrain, compel his disciples to go ahead of him? And how does it demonstrate his providential care for them? Well, there's a few different interpretations that are given by commentators on why Christ sends them away. First, that it was getting late in the evening, you recall. And he desired to send the 4,000 men whom he had fed away that they should not have to travel all night long. So he sends his disciples ahead of him while he stays behind to dismiss the multitude. Second, the disciples would not leave Christ behind of their own accord, so he has to compel them or force them to do so. Third, as John relates in his gospel at this place, the multitude, after receiving this miraculous feeding, actually it says in John 6.15, desired to take him by force, and to make him a king. And Jesus, knowing his disciples' propensity to, propensity to be swayed by the crowd, sent them ahead of himself so that they would not be caught up in this folly. And then fourth option, Jesus wished to have a time of private communion with God, his Father. Each of these interpretations, each of these answers has good support. But I think it is likely a mixture of them all likely a mixture of all those reasons, but most especially that Jesus did not wish his disciples to be caught up with the multitude's desire to forcefully make him some earthly king. 
that Christ had to constrain, which is again a very forceful word in the original language, his disciples, demonstrates that they did not understand why it was that Jesus should send them ahead of him. That they did not wish to leave him even. And that he likely gave no answer to their question if they asked it. Why, Lord? The disciples' reluctance to leave Christ behind may also have risen from their dislike of again traveling upon the sea by boat at night. For, as we recall a few chapters earlier, the last time they did this, the last time they went out into the Sea of Galilee on a boat, a fierce storm arose and almost killed them. But that time, Jesus was with them to save them from drowning. So if they go by boat without him across the Sea of Galilee at night, what if another storm should arise? As it did. But Christ is not with them to keep them safe. So possibly they were fearful to go do it. They did not consider that Jesus could care for them just as well while away from them on the land as he could care for them while in the boat with them as he did before. The disciples no doubt wondered why. Why? Why dost thou send us ahead of thee, O Lord? Our only desire is to be with thee, especially after having been some time apart from thee on our missionary journey. With thee is both comfort and safety. But Christ, Christ always knows what is best for his people. He knows his people's weaknesses and he is lovingly mindful of his people's weaknesses. He shall not keep them in a situation that does not best fit their current circumstances, ever. Jesus is tender, and he is compassionate to the needs of his sheep, for he is the good shepherd. Though we are sometimes unmindful of our own temptations, though we are sometimes unmindful of our weaknesses, yet Christ, our Lord, is always mindful of them, and always does that which is best for, him, for us. Though the disciples wondered why Jesus asked this of them to go without him across the sea, and although he had to force them to leave, we see that they eventually did submit to him. They did get in the boat. They did go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. From this, we, we also can learn from them. Let us also, as Christians, submit to our Lord Jesus Christ and his providential care of us even when we don't understand it. Let us remember what the psalmist says in Psalm 121, verses 4 through 7. He that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is thy keeper. The Lord shall preserve thee from all evil. He shall preserve thy soul. Thus we should submit ourselves to him and entrust our keeping to him. Another demonstration of Christ's providential care is seen in verses 46 through 48a. And when he had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. And when even was come, that is evening, the ship was in the midst of the sea, and he alone on the land. And he saw them toiling and rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them. What do we notice? Jesus Christ, dear congregation, is the man of prayer. Jesus Christ is the man of prayer. No one so demonstrated the necessity, the beauty, or power of prayer more than our Lord Jesus. Though he was God incarnate, God manifest in the flesh, yet being truly man also, he went to his heavenly Father for strength, for guidance, and for communion with him. The gospels show us the life of Jesus the life of Jesus was, as it were, one long prayer. One long prayer, as some of the Puritans put it. We see the many miraculous demonstrations of power which Christ performed. Yet we never see his disciples coming to him and saying, Lord, teach us to perform miracles. But what do we see? We see in Luke 11:1 1, that they come to him and ask, Lord, teach us to pray. Our Lord Jesus was a man of prayer, the man of prayer. So Jesus here absents himself from his disciples, but it is to pray. He absents himself from his disciples, but in order to pray. 
We read that the disciples were in the midst of the sea. John's account tells us that the disciples were five miles from land, truly in the middle of the sea, especially for the Sea of Galilee being a rather small body of water. Matthew, in his account, adds that the ship was being battered by the waves and that the wind was blowing hard against them. In verse 48 of our passage before us, Mark tells us that the disciples were toiling and and rowing. They were toiling and they're rowing. They were having a hard time getting where they needed to go to fight against the wind and the waves. It was the fourth watch of the night, we are told, which is about 3 a.m., the time between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. before the sun has even begun to rose. And they were about to faint while fighting against the wind, the stormy sea, and the pitch blackness of night. No doubt, the disciples were gripped with fear and may have thought to themselves, see, this is why we should never have left Jesus. We are about to be swallowed up in the sea and drown. And Jesus is not here to save us as he was before. From a mere human perspective, the disciples are indeed in a very dangerous position, aren't they? And it was understandable that they should be fearful. They're out in this stormy sea, and Jesus is alone on the land. But behold, Christ is in prayer. Christ is in prayer. Of course, Jesus often prayed simply because he wanted to be with his Father. He wanted to commune with God, his Father. He loved his Father. He loved to do his Father's will and to speak with his Father. We, mere humans, often go in prayer to God because we need something, and we forget to just go to God in prayer to be with him because we want to be with our Father. But not so Christ, our Lord. Jesus often prayed simply to be with his Father. But when Jesus is bowed in prayer, even for us, we must remember that when Jesus is bowed in prayer, his people have great cause for comfort. For Jesus is praying. Christ may be on land while they are at sea, but Christ is on land engaged in prayer. In prayer. His prayers, as we've seen in many of his prayers throughout Scripture, include intercession for his people. And no doubt here as well. Christ was miles away on land, but we also read that supernaturally, he looked through the darkness five miles out to sea and saw them toiling and rowing. He saw that they were in trouble. It's not that he just glanced up and saw. It's pitch black. There's a storm, no moonlight even, and they're five miles from land. This was a supernatural vision. Remember, Psalm 34 Verse 15 says, The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry. Again, humanly speaking, the disciples were in grave danger. But Christ, oh, Christ is in prayer. What is the result of this? What is the result? Well, the result is that their situation actually was not dangerous at all. It was not dangerous at all, For on yonder hill, yonder hill, Christ is praying for them. That their lives should be spared. That they would be able to finish their mission. This teaches us a great lesson on providence, dear congregation. On providence. God's supernatural governing of all things. Decreeing of all things. It seems that the disciples have been left for dead. For even when they saw Jesus walking upon the water, it seemed to them that he would have passed them by, we read. God's people often wonder, don't we? We often wonder that we are abandoned by God. God's people and their circumstances, circumstances, they see that their circumstances are so contrary to them. Their situations possibly so sharp and painful their desperation and their hopelessness so very palpable that God seems far from them. God seems far. 
We read the Psalter. How often do we see David speaking like this? Does God forget his people? Does Jesus abandon those who he came to save? Was God's promise to the church, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee in jest? Was it in jest? Truly, this cannot be. For Jesus himself told us in the Sermon on the Mount, Behold the fowls, that is the little birds of the air. For they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? God decrees and governs all things. Dear congregation, therefore let us trust him. The Puritan, John Flavel, once said, Some providences, some things that occur in our life, some providences, like Hebrew Letters must be read backwards. Oftentimes, it is only in retrospect as Christians, when we look back upon how events have played out in our lives, that we can see God's hand guiding and governing us and caring for us the entire time. So like Hebrew letters, we must read them backwards. Though during that season, God may have seemed far from us, seemed that he left us for dead, that we were out five miles In a stormy sea, the disciples toiled, seemingly to their fate, against the storm. But also we read this, that Jesus saw them. Again, supernaturally looking up, he saw them. Dear believers, there is great comfort for us here, just in those two words, saw them. Whatever situation we might be in, Wherever we may be, our Lord Jesus Christ sees us, dear congregation. Whether we are alone, whether we are in company with other people, whether we are in sickness or in health, whether we are at sea or on land, whether we are in perils at home or perils abroad, in the wilderness even, we can be sure that the same eye which saw the disciples toiling at rowing The same eye which saw the disciples tossed to and fro on the sea is always looking upon us. Always looking upon us, his people. We are never beyond the reach of Christ's care, dear congregation. Never. Our way, our path is never hid from him. He knows the path that we take and he is still able and willing to help us as his people. He may not come to our aid at a time that we like best, but he will never utterly allow us to fail. He that walked upon the water is he who is the same yesterday and today and forever, Hebrews 13, 8. He will always come to us at exactly the right time in order to uphold us and deliver us. Though Christ tarry, dear congregation, though he tarry, Let us wait patiently, for Jesus sees us and will never forsake us. Providence, sometimes, when it is directly acting for the good of God's people, even when it is directly acting for the good of God's people, may yet sometimes seem as if it would pass by them and give no regard for their situation. The Puritan Richard Sibbs, whom Charles Spurgeon said in his writings, scatters jewels and rubies with both hands, said this, Christ may act the part of an enemy for a time, as Joseph did to his brothers, but only to make his mercy more glorious at the proper time. He continues, faith pulls the veil from Christ's face and sees a loving heart under contrary appearances, under contrary appearances, meaning that may appear that he's against us, he's working against us or has abandoned us. But behind that contrary appearance is a loving heart that is actually working for our good. Though God may seem to abandon us, though God seems to abandon us, faith holds fast the promises, dear congregation. Amen. Secondly, The dullness of 
the disciples, the dullness. Let's read verses 48 through 52. And he saw them toiling and rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them. And about the fourth watch of the night he cometh unto them, walking upon the sea, and would have passed by them. And when they saw him walking upon the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit, and cried out. For they all saw him, and were troubled. And immediately he talked with them, and saith unto them, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And he went up unto them, into the ship, and the wind ceased. And they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure, and wondered, For they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. The disciples were doubting. They were of little faith, bound up with common superstitions of the time. And they were still largely insensitive to the truth of Christ's person and work. They, in a word, were dull. Their hearts were not inflamed with faith at the seeing of these miracles and the hearing of his teaching, as they should have been. Rather, they stayed with their little faith. Foundational to all their insensitivity and dullness was this. Their heart was hardened. The end of the verse 52. Their heart was hardened. And that is why they considered not the miracle of the loaves. All of the miracles All of the teachings of Christ up to this point did not have the impact nor the reception that they should have among his disciples. They did not consider them. That means understand. They did not grasp or understand them in their fullness. If they had fully understood the significance of even the feeding that they had just seen, the feeding of the multitude, then they would have grasped at least something of Christ's power to bend the material world at his will and would not have been shocked to see him walking up to them upon the waters, especially in light of the fact that they had already been with Jesus when he had stilled the storm. They've seen him control the forces of nature. Thus, they were dull. However, we should not confuse this hardness of heart with the, hard, with the hardened hearts of the Pharisees. Let's not confuse that term, their hearts were hardened, as thinking it's the same as the hardness of the Pharisee's heart. The Pharisee's hardness was one of callousness, a resentment, a hardness of enmity and rebellion, a resistance against Christ, whereas the hardness of the disciple's heart was an obtuseness, as it were. An obtuseness, an inability to draw the necessary conclusions from the miracles of Jesus that they should have. And this was due to a sinful neglect of meditating upon the wonderful works as well as upon the nature and teaching of the one who performed them, namely Jesus. The Pharisees were faithless. The Pharisees were faithless. The disciples, on the contrary, Judas accepted were men of faith, even if it was little faith. The disciples were men of faith, even if it was but little faith. Thus, we should never despise faith, no matter how small it is in ourselves or others. Yet still, they failed to grasp the miracles, and it led to the dullness that we see here. Not only did Christ's disciples assume that the figure they saw walking upon the water would pass them by and not help them, leave them for dead. But even once Christ approached them, they cried out, literally shrieked, and supposed it had been a spirit. Edoxan fandasma ina. They supposed him to be a phantom, fandasma, a phantom, a ghost, a specter. In the world of the disciples, it was thought to be a a very real possibility that a ghoul, a ghost, could appear to you at any moment. That's certainly a frightening thought. This superstition was ingrained in the Jewish culture at that time. Imagine. Imagine it. They were looking with their eyes upon the physical Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and their Savior. 
And yet they thought he was some infernal haunting specter, a phantom, a ghost. Little faith indeed. But wait, modern man, as with all things supernatural, would scoff at this as well. Huh, how foolish and silly these ancient people were. That they would think a ghost could appear to them. We are men of science. We reject such silliness. But before we join in with them and scoffing at the disciples' fears and superstitions, let us consider the truth of the matter of our age. Even today, there are millions of scientific Westerners, including professing Christians, who will go and consult the media to predict what the stock market will say. What the stock market's going to be. They'll trust the predictions and prophecies of commentators. There are millions of people who after breaking a mirror on Friday the 13th, when a black cat has just crossed their path, would shrink back in horror from walking under a ladder on their way to room number 13 on the 13th floor of their hotel. And once there, they would spill a generous amount of salt on the floor. How much more terrified would these modern scientific people be to do this if their horoscope had marked this as an unlucky day? So you see, we actually live possibly in a more superstitious time than the disciples. So let us tread carefully in casting judgment upon their fears. Do you want to see superstition? Go to ASU and sit in a class. There you will see much superstition. How many thousands in the present day, if they had seen what the disciples saw, would have behaved in the same manner? We doubt few people could have kept their cool and been unafraid. If while they were on board some ship in the middle of the night, they were suddenly to see a person walking towards the ship upon stormy seas. Placed in the same situation, few would have fared better than the disciples. The boldest skeptics have oftentimes, and we know this to be true, the boldest skeptics have oftentimes proved themselves to be the greatest of all cowards. When appearances have been seen at night that they could not explain, suddenly they're not so skeptical. They're more so cowards. I personally know probably four or five professing atheists who, when taken by sleep paralysis on some night, have seen horrifying visions of beings in the room with them during sleep paralysis. And they have certainly been brought to fervent and fearful prayer. The truth is that there is an instinctive feeling, if we may so call it, in all human beings, which has made them terrified of anything which seems to belong to another world. Many vainly attempt by pretended and false carelessness of spiritual things to conceal a conscience that there are unseen beings, an unseen realm, and that this life which they are now living in the flesh is not the only life they shall live. Although the common stories which so many of us have heard about ghosts and apparitions are undoubtedly foolish and superstitious, and that many of them can often just be traced to the fears and imaginations of weak-minded people, people under sleep paralysis or who had a bad piece of pizza. Yet the fact that such stories are shared universally throughout history among, human, among humanity and universally across the world today is, is proof, indirect evidence of man's underlying belief in unseeing things. Just as counterfeit money is an evidence that there is true money. It serves as a testimony which no atheist is able to answer. No atheist is able to answer why everyone believes in ghosts and specters and spiritual realms innately. It proves that there is something within men which testifies which testifies to a world beyond the grave and that when men sense it, they are afraid. So anything that reminds them 
of this unseen realm. They're afraid. Truly, as the scriptures say in Hebrews 9.27 and 2 Corinthians 5.10, it is appointed unto men once to die. But after this, the judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, that is, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to what he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Every human being knows that. Every human being knows that that is true. They will give an account for what they have done. They know they are more morally obligated to the God that created them. Whether they admit it or not, the Bible says their conscience testifies against them. We've all heard the common saying, there are no atheists in foxholes. That is true. So we see that it is a natural thing that the disciples would have been afraid. They would have been startled, as all men are when they are confronted with the supernatural, whether it's a supposed ghoul in the night, or whether it is the God-man Christ Jesus walking upon the stormy sea unto them. Man fears the unseen realm. Why? For it stands in judgment against him for his sins done in the body. So Christianity, dear congregation, Christianity offers the antidote to such fears. The antidote antidote to fear of the unseen world is what? Faith in an unseen Savior. The antidote to fears of the unseen world is faith in the unseen Savior and continual communion with Him. The Christian provided with this antidote is to live against all the fears of the unseen world, both of the coming judgment of God against sin and the invisible hordes of devils, which do indeed war against us. We must use this antidote against the fear of God's judgment of sin, for we are in Christ and of the devils, which swarm us about to do us harm. 1 John 4 17 and 18, the Apostle John says, Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear. And in 1 John 4, 4, he writes, Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So we see that we should not fear either judgment from God as Christians, nor the devil and his armies. Dear congregation, we are truly traveling onward towards a world of spirits, are we not? We are surrounded even now by many dangers. But with our Lord Jesus as our shepherd, We have no cause for alarm. No cause for alarm. With him as our shield, we are safe. We no longer have to fear our threefold enemy. That is, the world, sin, and Satan. For Christ has set his caring eye of providence upon us. Let us therefore fight dullness and fear with a closer study of Christ. Third, And last, the Lord's divine power to save and comfort the disciples, not only fearing for their lives in this perilous sea, but having now also been taken with terror at the sight of what they thought was a ghost, were troubled, we read. And they're troubled even as Jesus approaches them to speak to them and get in the ship with them. But even in their fearful and confused state, Jesus was tender and kind to them. We read in verses 50 and 51, Immediately he talked with them and saith unto them, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And he went up unto them into the ship. And the wind ceased, and they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure, and wondered, Man, by nature, is a fearful being. He is born dead in sins and transgressions. On his way to God's judgment of hellfire. He is without God 
and without hope in the world, Ephesians tells us. The world raises itself up against poor man, and he is utterly helpless to fend it off. Satan holds natural, unregenerate man captive to do his will. So that all that an unregenerate man is, is fear. But let us contrast unregenerate man with the Christian. The unsaved man is afraid of God because he is God's enemy and God shall judge him. But the Christian does not fear the wrath of God for God is his dearest friend and will not do him any harm. The unsaved man is afraid of Satan because Satan is his cruel master and tormentor. But the Christian does not fear Satan because Satan is unable to do him any harm. And any afflictions which God does permit Satan to do to the Christian, God works them for his good. The unsaved man fears this world, both the calamities that take place in it and the world as a system, an institution, because they work with Satan against him to destroy him and lead him astray. The Christian does not fear the world because all things are governed by God and fall out according to his purposes. The unsaved man always fears his conscience for it echoes God's judgment against him for his sin. But the Christian does not fear conscience for it rests at peace in Christ. When fears, dear congregation, assault and even temporarily overthrow our minds and hearts, Christ comes to us with the healing salve of the gospel. We may sit trembling in the storms of life, but Christ stands with us and speaks words of peace unto our hearts, doesn't he? The devil has desired to sift us as wheat, but Christ has prayed for us that our faith fail not. When the law of God, dear congregation, When the law of God casts our faces down in shame and condemnation, Christ makes the law, causes the law to be our schoolmaster, to lift our eyes back up to him and hear his sweet and familiar voice saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Be not afraid. At the hearing of his voice, all the superstitious fears of the disciples are dispelled in an instant. They now know that the being they saw walking on the stormy sea was not some infernal phantom, but their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The disciples had thought this form that we see walking out there cannot be a man, for human beings cannot walk on water. This must be a ghost. Now, they were partly correct, weren't they? They were partly correct, if this is what they thought. And now, that they, and now they knew they were partly correct. It was no mere man. It was the God-man. It was the God-man. God manifest in the flesh. The incarnate Jehovah. Their Lord, Jesus Christ. They are assured of this very truth at his words, as we see. Christ says to them, It is I, in Greek, egoimi. Egoimi. Although this was simply a common way of identifying oneself in Greek, and though we don't wish to read too much into anything, yet it is not beyond our scope to see a clear allusion to the divine covenant name, I am, which God gave to Moses in Exodus 3.14. God's covenant name, I am, Jehovah which is often rendered in Greek as egoimi. So it's not beyond our scope. It's not reading too far, we think, to see here an allusion to the divine name. To his terrified disciples, it's as if Jesus says, It is I, your very master, who hath chosen you to be my disciples, who hath been guiding you step by step, who hath already demonstrated to you by so many divine miracles, To be your God and your Lord. It is I, Jehovah God, the great I am, 
who created the waters by mine own will and power, and now cometh unto you, walking upon those same waters to both deliver and comfort you. As soon as Jesus had spoken these words, Jesus walked off the water, if you can think of it, and into the boat with them. Immediately, as before, when they were upon the stormy sea, the wind and storm ceased. Jesus, you see, reading Providence backwards like Hebrew letters, had been keeping them the entire time. And now, fully discharged all of their fears and doubts. The believer's fears cannot remain when they have assurance that Christ is with them. Dear congregation, we might think, well, the disciples had Jesus walking on the water and get in the boat with them. Of course, their fears were dispelled. I would like that too. But Christ dear congregation, is no less with us in our storms now than then. In fact, by his Holy Spirit, whom he has given to us, Christ is with us more intimately, more closely, more tangibly than he was when he was with his disciples here in this passage in the boat physically. Do we believe that? It's true. Yet, let us not close the sermon without mentioning that even after all of this, After all of this, the disciples, we read, were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure and wondered. This again was due to their dull hearts, which failed to grasp the true significance of the miracles. They were filled with superabundant and exceeding wonder. What could this mean? Who is this that can do such miracles? Though Christ had told them plainly who he was by this point. Yet, they did not quite grasp it, did they? What should later appear self-evident to them after Christ's resurrection and ascension, as we see in the book of Acts, and what now appears elementary to us while reading the account, that this is God incarnate, and that of course he could walk on the waters, and of course he wouldn't leave them to be destroyed. Yet, This was still failed to be comprehended by them at that time. But let us also not forget that just like them, what seems dark to us now, and many things do, shall one day be made all light. All light. And many things that were once dark to us before, when we came to faith, are now much lighter. But one day all things shall be seen clearly. In 1 Corinthians 13, 12, the Apostle Paul says, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know even also as I am known. We must labor, dear congregation, to improve. That is, to make use of and to multiply the knowledge that we have of God in Christ now. By attending the means of grace and by practicing our faith. Walking in holy submission and reliance upon Christ. Living out of gratitude to him for what he has done. Dear believers, let us not give place, any place at all, to faithless fear. On the eve of Christ's crucifixion, while he was with his disciples, Jesus says unto their timid hearts, and he uses the same word here, troubled, that appears in our passage when the disciples had thought they'd seen a ghost. He says to them here, the eve of his crucifixion in John 14, 1, let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. This is the cure to our fears. We no doubt may fear at many of the providences that come to pass in our life. As limited human beings, This is to be expected. But faithless fears are not to be indulged. Rather, they are to be brought to Christ, submitted to him, and dispelled by faith. When Satan tempts us to despair, when the guilt of sin within us threatens to consume us as so many billowing waves, when the circumstances of our life 
seem to mock our faith and tell us that God has left us to drown in our own helpless ignorance and superstition. Jesus comes to us walking upon the waters and says, Be of good cheer, my child. It is I. Be not afraid. The Puritan Robert Layton tells us, Of little dwarfs, fear makes giants. Of little dwarfs, fear makes giants. Though the hand of providence may have been brought to us in the midst of the sea, though it may have brought us into some hard place or situation, though its waves and wind press hard against us, though we tremble and shriek at every supposed phantom which fear makes, yet this is all nothing to our covenant God, the great I am, who has brought us into this place and shall surely deliver us from it. Believe, dear Christian. Believe. It is your duty to believe that behind every dark cloud of providence is the shining sun of divine love. Such faith is what brings all of the world's jobs to cry out in faith, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. Let us fear not, for Christ sees us, and Christ is praying for us, and shall quickly deliver us. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we once again come to Thee through Thy Son, Jesus Christ, who has made a way for us. Lord, we ask that we would submit to thy providence. We would trust thee no matter what circumstance our life has been brought to at this hour or shall be brought to. Holy Spirit, that thou wouldst grant us faith to trust in thee, our God, our Lord, our covenant God who hath redeemed us, saved us, set us free from the bondage of the law, has cast out fear, for we know thou lovest us. Thou hast worked all things and shall work all things for our good. Again, Lord, we thank thee for the many blessings thou hast given us. We thank thee also for the blessing and be able to hear thy word preached. And we ask thou wouldst apply it to all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.